Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Louise Hitchcock on April 13th, 2021. An episode was published where Dr. Hitchcock joined the show and we had a conversation about a few Greek islands, uh, Greek architecture in the Bronze Age. In that conversation, we we predominantly spoke about Thera, which would be present-day Santorini, Crete, and Kia, which is in the Cyclades, which is a group of islands in the Aegean Sea. In today's conversation, Dr. Hitchcock is back on the show, and we're going to have a conversation and focus more on Thera, the Thera civilization during the Bronze Age, so what scholars know about this civilization. Dr. Hitchcock is Professor of Archaeology in the Discipline of Classics and Archaeology in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne, based in Australia. She has written over 100 publications over her career, including a couple books as examples. She's co-author of the book Aegean Art and Architecture, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she's author of the book Theory for Classics, which was published by Routledge. Welcome back on the call, Louise. Glad to be here, Andrew. All right. So in the last uh, conversation we had, Louise, we focused in on a few Greek islands during the, the Bronze Age, Thera, Crete, and Kia. Today, we're going to speak more specifically, zoom in on uh, Thera. So let's start with um, let's start with a broad overview type question. What was Thera in the context of uh, the, the Bronze Age? In the context of the Bronze Age, Thera is probably the most important of the Cycladic Islands. And this has to do with its proximity to Crete. It was just 60 miles or 100 kilometers north of Crete. So if you were sailing from Crete to the mainland of Greece, it would have been one of the first sites that you reached. Um, it was also important because it made up part of what I referred to last time it, as the Western String. Um, this refers to, within the Cyclades, the islands of Thera, Milos, and Kea, which are the westernmost group of the Cycladic Islands that would have formed maybe a string of stopping off points to get to the mainland. And um, the Cyclades themselves, and I believe I mentioned this also last time, were part of an underground mountain range that, um, that where the tops poked through the sea and formed a circular uh, formation of islands. And this is why they're called the Cyclades, coming from the Greek word kiklos. And Thera's importance lies in not just the fact that it is close to Crete, but it has so many Minoan features. There has been ongoing speculation as to whether the Therans were actually from Crete or if they were just their own civilization, but drew heavily on um, being influenced so much that they imitated much about Crete. And we know we have, they had uh, very close relationships based on the fact that we actually have large caches of Minoan style loom weights there. 
And this is very significant in that um, something I learned a while ago from um, reading work of people who study ancient weaving is that different shapes of loom weights and different weights produce different um, sort of uh, tightness of fabrics, but also require different sorts of muscle memory. And the muscle memory to become a skilled weaver usually begins with a person um, usually believed to be female in their teens. And so the indication that there were these large numbers of Minoan loomates weights on Thera may indicate some sort of intermarriage going back and forth. At the same time, while we have these strong Minoan influences, what sets Thera apart is that they had their own unique pottery style, whereas their architecture, um, their decoration, um, and many other features imitate what you find in Minoan palatial uh, culture. And Thera, using present-day terminology, is Santorini in Greece. That's correct. Okay, so... If someone goes to Santorini today, what um, vestiges exist that relate to this Bronze Age civilization? Um, the Bronze Age civilization or the site that can be visited is on the southern tip of the island. Um, the island is round and the middle is mostly filled with water because the center of the island is a still active volcano. And it's actually within modern history, two tiny islands formed in the center of this volcano. And you can actually take a boat out to them and walk around them. The ground is hot. You can see the steam coming up. And if you go swimming um, off these two islands, it's like uh, being in a giant jacuzzi. But you would not be, there's not really any place to stay at the archaeological site of Akrotiri. Most people stay in one of the major cities, either Fira, which is in the center, or Oyo, which is in the northern tip. Most people stay in Fira because it's the easiest site from which to get around to different places. It's where the ships dock if you take a ship in. And it's also near where the planes land if you decide to fly in. And again, the island is not huge, so it's easy to be based in Fira and then actually take um, a tour bus or rental car or some other form of transportation um, to visit Akrotiri. And then there are other things to do on the island because of its volcanic nature. You have things like a black sand beach, and a red sand beach and a green sand beach. Some of these beaches are not easily accessible. And what you can do is very reasonably um, rent a boat. They have a series of like boat taxis that will take you to these um, more inaccessible beaches, which are really uh, quite nice. There's also a classical site. I can't say I know a lot about it, but I visited it that was founded um, by the Spartans um, in the classical period. However, most people go either for the beaches or to visit the site or both. And then there's a museum in Fira 
that now houses most of the frescoes. They used to be housed in Athens and then this new museum was built. The frescoes are very unique in that because of the volcanic eruption that destroyed the archeological site of Akrotiri, um, preserved the buildings to the second or third story. Um, thus preserving, you have the best preserved Bronze Age frescoes in the Aegean. And um, a lot of people like to refer to Thera as the Pompeii of the Aegean. However, I like to refer to Pompeii as the Thera of the Roman civilization. The first time I visited Greece about six years ago or so, maybe five years, five or six years, um, Santorini was actually the first island in Greece that I that I visited. So I stayed in. And what's what's the um, how do you pronounce it? Uh, Ia? How do you pronounce that? The the northern town. It's like Ia or Oya. Okay. Um, you say tomato. I say tomato. Okay. All good. Yeah. I just want to clarify. Okay. So I stayed in Ia, but I was I actually spent a bit of time in Fira, which you mentioned as well, and. Um, both beautiful cities. Uh, it's kind of the calendar cities. It's it's kind of your proverbial calendar cities if people can think about uh, uh, San- Santorini on a calendar. Um, uh, nice wine too. What's that? What? Nice wine as well. Yeah, yeah. Has actually, I had some some wine when I was on uh, Santorini. Um, so they're on the west side, the west coast, and you're mentioning the. Uh, the volcano. So, so I was actually having co- coffee in one of the cafes in Fira, looking out uh, at the sea at this um, large plot of land um, that's not attached to the to the island. So, is that is that where there is a volcano still today? Yes, it's still active. And if you're looking out to those two tiny islands, like I said, those were formed in recent time. So the center of the island is, is the volcanic caldera. And for many, many years, in fact, when I started as a student, um, there was a belief that the entire island was round and that it was solid and that the volcanic eruption caused the middle of the island to collapse into the sea. Now, more recent thinking um, suggests that uh, there was never a, a, a solid center that blew up, that it was always, that the caldera was always filled with water. Okay. So uh, when I was in Santorini, I certainly remembered reading about the archaeology site that you referenced, the Acro Tiri. Um, I didn't get down to visit it. So when scholars are leaning on, evidence on the island so versus you know evidence on different you know different parts of the area that might help understand civilization but when scholars are leaving leaning on evidence on the island is it is it predominantly or entirely these days the the what's left in Akrotiri? um that's a really good question um it's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing and i might mention it's possible when you were there that the um site was closed. There was a very unfortunate circumstance a number of years ago where they um, tried to make the site uh, have a more sort of um, fitting in with the landscape appearance. They took off the original metal roof that was supported by girders 
and they tried to put in a more natural looking roof with grass on it. However, they didn't, um, they didn't correctly um, calculate how much the roof would weigh after the grass was watered and it collapsed and killed fortunately only one tourist because it collapsed at the end of the day. But then to repair it, they had to shut the site down um, for a number of years. Um, Akrotiri was discovered in the 30s and the 40s, and it's still ongoing excavation. Not all the houses there are excavated. Um, a, large, a large part of our understanding of Bronze Age Aegean civilization comes from the excavations on Crete, which took place over 100 years ago. And they were not carried out with the greatest care. In other words, a lot of evidence such as um, animal bone evidence, um, a lot of the pottery wasn't saved. Um, Evans, who excavated Knossos, did a lot of uh, reconstructions in concrete that actually uh, destroyed or made large parts of the site unaccessible for further study. And um, this shaped a lot of the early ideas. And more recently, studying Akrotiri is helping us rethink some of our earlier assumptions. Um, just to throw out one quick example, um, until the excavation of Akrotiri, most of the Minoan frescoes on Crete um, come, the majority come from Knossos. Uh, there are others from other palaces as well and other villas. However, many of them don't survive or survive in very poor shape. The reason why Knossos has the most frescoes, it was inhabited much longer than the other buildings on Crete. Um, there are frescoes from its first period, there are, which is sort of what we call the old palace Minoan period. There are again additional frescoes from what we call the second palace period when the building was reconstructed in about 1700 BCE. And then in 1450, when Minoan civilization is destroyed, the only major building that isn't destroyed is Knossos, which is re-inhabited by the Mycenaeans. And they again created new frescoes, and that gives us a lot. But what we learned from Akrotiri, which is really, really fascinating, is that almost every house Actually, every house there contained a fresco program. And so it not only indicates that fresco painting may have been more widespread on Crete than what survives, um, it also gives us a very good idea of what some of the more fragmentary frescoes on Crete might have looked like. And in some cases, we get it, we find evidence where some of the earlier reconstructions are wrong. And a really good example of this is um, a fresco that Evans called Blue Boy, which shows uh, a figure picking lilies that's blue. And Evans reconstructed it as a boy. Um, we now know from the Blue Monkeys fresco at Akrotiri that the creature that Evans reconstructed as a boy was more likely a monkey. Okay. When, uh, when we chatted last, Louise, um, you mentioned that there was 
uh, perhaps the term is debate. There's not there's not consensus over if certain islands like uh, Thera was had its own sovereignty in the Bronze Age, or if it was uh, part of the governance structure of uh, Crete, so the the Minoans. Can you speak more ab- about that and why there 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 perhaps is some evidence that um, the Thera was part of the governance structure of of uh, of the Minoans. Well, first of all, we don't even know what the governance structure was in Crete. Um, it used to be thought, again, a hundred years ago, that um, and this is evidence being influenced by his Victorian upbringing that you had a king whose seat was at Knossos and that all the other palaces were like summer palaces that uh, this king would travel around to, kind of like the Queen of England goes to Windsor or to Balmoral. And there's really no evidence for any of this. We do know that the Mycenaeans were ruled by a king because we have their tablets that we can read that tell us there's a Wanox. What there does seem to be on Crete is a religious bureaucracy um, that administered from the palaces. And I've argued recently in a paper um, that I've given a couple of places and in a short newspaper article that um, the Minoans actually were the first deep state. And what I mean by a deep state isn't some nefarious group of, uh, of people trying to rule the Mediterranean, but um, the concept of a deep state is one that's fairly well known from political science. And what it really refers to is the career bureaucracy that um, may be entrenched in their jobs, whether it's at the State Department or some other um, position within the federal government. Um, There's civil servants that work for life. And if they happen to like the policies of a particular um, president, they will work hard to implement them. If they don't like the policies, they'll do what we now call in modern parlance a slow walk so that they never become fully implemented, or they may even become implemented poorly so that they fail. And um, I think that Crete was also ruled by a type of career bureaucracy. Another reason I say this is having looked at a lot of the palaces, the main rooms are large halls, many of them have benches, which implies a group of people meeting, not a single person who's ruling. And a lot of what we know about Minoan society comes from the designs carved on or on their stone seals or cast onto gold seal rings. And most of these people are without, they're faceless, they're without facial features indicating a certain anonymity. And so what I've argued is that these are mainly corporate groups that pass on uh, their power generationally 
or perhaps they adopt people into their group and they sort of behave in a faceless way using religion to legitimize uh, the system they administer. Now, how this fits in with Akrotiri, we do know of trade relations besides the um, what I mentioned with the loom weights. We have Minoan-style ceilings and commodities from Akrotiri. And some of these ceilings, the uh, ceiling is the clay impression made by a seal. Um, we still have seals today, like the Great Seal of the United States or the Seal of Australia or the seal that's placed on your, um, let's say, your graduation diploma. Um, in the 19th century, when you wrote a letter, you dripped some wax on the envelope and then you had a signet ring that you impressed with your seal to guarantee the integrity of the letter. So the impression made by a seal is the ceiling. And um, some of the ceilings we have in Akrotiri are what they call packet ceilings. And what this means is that there was a message written on parchment, folded up, shoved into the bottom of the seal, and then tied with a string to hold it there, and then sent. Um, we no longer have the message because the parchment disintegrated and we can't read the language anyway. But it indicates that there was some kind of administrative communication back and forth. What I suspect is that the, the culture on Akrotiri was affiliating with Minoan culture to the extent that they imitated a lot of the symbols of prestige we find in Minoan culture. But I suspect that they were all wealthy merchants benefiting from their connections with Crete and their adoptions of many aspects of Minoan culture. Um, I actually wrote an article on this, which I sent you about um, where I argued that the wall paintings in one of the buildings represented a biography of the owner who was a wealthy merchant. And so I would tend to see this as connected with participating in the same system, but not necessarily being controlled by it. Is that article online? If I were to drop a link to it in the show notes for everybody? It's in my, it's on my academia page along with about 90 other articles. Yeah. Okay. I'll drop, a, I'll drop a link to whether it's the, the specific article or your, your academia page. So someone can uh, get to that article in the show notes that's associated to this episode. That would be great. Yeah. Um, okay. Is it believed that there, in this period of time, there was one village or town um, that, com you know, comprised of this civilization on the island or do, do you believe there actually was more villages or towns in the Bronze Age on, on this island that perhaps the, um, the, the, the structures just don't survive today or they just haven't been found? I would really be surprised if there weren't more, given how densely Crete is occupied and the fact that you have something like now seven or eight palaces and 30 palatial villas. The problem is, is that when the island blew up, um, in some cases, there are just meters and meters and meters of volcanic debris 
one would have to dig through to try and find something more. And then you'd have to, and if you dug in the wrong place and you spent many years sinking this trench to find something and then nothing was there, um, you might not get any more grant money. A lot of archeology, span archeological activity is driven by the ability to obtain grant money and obtaining more grant money is um, kind of dependent on having some kind of tangible result. Okay, so the Akrotiri, um, how, how large do you think that village or town was in the Bronze Age? Can you describe, and, and if you need to infer, you know, go ahead and, and, and infer and just cite it where, where necessary. But how, if you were to describe it so that we can, uh, you know, visualize the size of the, the village or town in terms of uh, buildings or structures, how would, you, how would you describe that? Well, I mean, it's really interesting because you have a town plan and you have a main street going through the town and you have, I can't remember the exact number of like connected townhouses, but you have like a dozen or so that are connected. And then you also have a number of freestanding villas. And out of these freestanding villas, some are completely built of what we call ashlar masonry. That's cut stone masonry. Um, and there's about five of those houses so far. Only one has been largely excavated because, first of all, they're filled to the brim with dirt. And to they, they excavate using modern methods, which means basically, you know, you dig with teaspoons instead of with uh, bulldozers. Well, not really teaspoons, but you dig very carefully. And so um, to even uncover what's there will take decades. And especially excavation there was um, inhibited by the Greek financial crisis. And one of the great shames about that, I was talking to the director at a conference a few years ago, and I said, well, you know, some other, some other um, team will use more modern methods and uh, continue the work. But what had upset him is that um, with the frescoes, and I mentioned to you, there are quite a number of frescoes. And even if they are fairly complete, they still need a lot of work in terms of restoration. And he had a team that had spent 20 years um, working on them. And once they have to go off and find different jobs, you lose that experience. It's like when somebody who works for an institution um, for 20 or 30 years, retires, you lose that institutional knowledge. And so that is uh, kind of detrimental. Now, in terms of the number of houses I've mentioned to you, like five Ashler houses, several more freestanding houses, and a dozen or so interconnected townhouses. I tried once for an article I was writing to get a population estimate. And Doing, trying to do archaeological demographics is notoriously problematic. And by that, I mean, I read population estimates for the town going from 3,000 people to 15,000 people. 
that's quite a substantial difference. And a lot of people, when they're looking, modern scholars, when they're looking at um, buildings from the past like this, they often tend to look at it in terms of um, thinking about our modern nuclear families um, where everybody has their own room. When I lived in Syria, I interacted with a number of extended families and it was more like um, the husband slept in the bedroom and um, the living room where entertaining was done, you'd lay out cushions for the entertaining. Everybody would sit on the floor and drink tea and eat cookies or lamb or whatever. And then when it was time to go to bed, the cushions would all be reconfigured into a bed and the wife might sleep there with her eight children, um, not with one or two children. And I knew a family in Syria where in order to have like seven children survive, the wife was pregnant 22 times. So I think in terms of ancient demographics, we have to think in radically different terms than we think today. Okay. And you think there's a lot more excavations than that can be done over time at, uh, at the site, Acro Tiri? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so can you describe what a loom, loom weight is? You mentioned that a, f- a few times. Okay. Um, when you make cloth, you do it on a loom. And a loom, and I'm not an expert on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can Google uh, warp-weighted loom and come up with all kinds of pictures and examples. But basically, it's um, a pole, um, a horizontal pole, and it might be supported by two more poles on each side or partly by the wall, something like a really tall sawhorse. And then you'd have threads hanging from it. And these threads would be um, sort of at the end of them would be a weight to sort of you know stretch them out as tautly as possible. And then you would be weaving um, thread in and out through the um, through the threads. Um, again, I'm probably giving this com- a very simplistic answer. There's a really great book called um, Prehistoric Textiles by Elizabeth Barber, which tells you more than you ever wanted to know about um, ancient weaving. But basically, that's basically how traditional weaving works. And, you know, you might have different weights, loom weights, depending also on what kind of material is being used. For example, flax or wool or even um, sea silk. That was actually going to be my next uh, question. What's known about the materials of textiles? Because just finished a a really good episode um, with Dr. Serena Sabatini on textiles in the in Northern Italy in the late Bronze Age. So uh, in, inside of the context of that episode, wool and and uh, flax uh, came up quite a, quite a bit. So is it known, Louise, if um, on this island in the Bronze Age, what materials were, were being used and did and, and it, it were sheep around uh, by this point in the island? Sheep were definitely around. There's actually, I believe you see sheep in a fresco in the West House. 
and um, you have tubs there. And, you know, people say, oh, it was for bathing or it was for elites. Um, a colleague of mine who works mostly in Israel has written a lot on the idea that clay tubs were used for woefully, and that is to um, squeeze the lanolin out. Um, and you do see people not so much in not so much in the Aegean, but in the Near East, wearing garments that look like um, sort of woolly garments. Um, we don't have any garments surviving, mm -hmm. really. The only places where you get good survival of garments is in Egypt because it's so dry. Um, we do have evidence that Egypt was importing Aegean textiles and this is based on tombs where you have the top of the tomb painted like a tent design, and it's using Aegean designs. And we know they're Aegean designs because of depictions of what people are wearing in Aegean frescoes. Also, there are tomb paintings that show what look like um, Minoan traders or diplomats, however you want to interpret them, carrying bolts of cloth uh, to Egypt as gifts. And it's also suggested they were using silk based on the um, evidence, I believe, from uh, mollusks, mollusks that were producing sea silk as well as in one of these paintings I mentioned, you have a lot of strange symbols um, in the in some of the paintings. Like one, you have a ship, and on the prow you have a giant moth, or maybe it's a butterfly. But um, that's been taken by some to indicate evidence that cloth was being produced also from silk. And then also, of course, cotton. You could have gotten cotton from Egypt and, uh, you know, traded various things back and forth. So I, I think all these things were being used, but it's really depend. There's a very, very sort of exact, uh, precise science in terms of the weights of the looms or the weights of the loom weights, how um, tight of a weave they would have given, what type of material they would have been used for. And in De I think it's in it's in Copenhagen. There is a center for the study of ancient textiles, run by a woman named Marie Louise Nosh, and um, she is also one of these experts on on the weaving. Yeah, that um, work and in, in site um, that work came up in the conversation. The Denmark um, site came up in the conversation with Dr. Sabatini as well. Um, were any palatial buildings found on the island? No, not yet. Um, it's not to say there weren't any, but there's no indication of any yet. However, there are buildings that have features that you find in the palaces. Um, you find nearly every sort of feature you find on Crete in Theron houses, just not all the same ones. For example, there's one house called the House of the Ladies that has a light well. There's more than one house that has these pier and door partitions that allow you to 
shut all the doors and create a wall or open them up one at a time and create a void. Um, there's been a horns of consecration found that probably fell off of a building. Um, there's been a room known as a lustral basin found, which is uh, one of these um, small um, sort of rectangular rooms sunken below the floor level with a set of steps leading down into them that are thought to be some kind of um, ceremonial room. And in this particular case, it's associated with a fresco program that includes a woman sitting on a rock holding her bleeding foot and then another woman bringing her a necklace as a gift and then a young girl with a veil over her head and she's looking to the other wall that has a horned altar there and then there's blood dripping down the horns and also um, an olive tree growing next to it. And it's thought that this represents some kind of um, pictorial program, like a comic book, where you might reveal the scene gradually um, by opening the doors one at a time. And the woman with the bleeding foot has been interpreted as possibly this is a symbol for maybe an initiation where you cut part of the body to have a symbolic death. You find this in anthropology in many uh, traditional societies. It's been suggested it's symbolic of her first menstruation. It's also been suggested that it's symbolic of her getting married. Is, um, if you were to describe the, what the size of the typical building is, so everyone can vi visualize it. And you, you mentioned um, in some civilizations, buildings are multi-purposed. You, you mentioned the, um, the, the spot in Syria where uh, families will sleep in the same room together. So I'm kind of using multi-purpose in that way in that case. But so what was the size? What was if you could describe the size of um, the the like the, the, the typical building in Acro uh, Tira? And is it presumed that all the buildings were used for residential purposes or have any buildings been found that uh, had other purposes clearly other than residents? Um, well, the building I just described, SD3, a lot of people have been interpreted it as sort of a ritual clubhouse used for initiation. But there's also no reason some people couldn't have lived in it all year round. And I can't say there's a, a typical size. Um, some are what we would call sort of uh, what would today consist of small single family dwellings and then larger ones on the scale of a mansion. Now, I'll tell you what I mean by this. You have these townhouses, they have an entrance, a vestibule, a, gr a ground floor, and an upper floor, and they're not huge. And these tend to be the ones that are stuck together. And it used to be that um, it wasn't sure how many of these were discrete houses, and an architect went in and studied them and was able to determine wherever you have a door, you also have a stairway and a window next to it. And she used this formula to determine the number of houses. And then there's 
house like I recently described with the um, fresco program in the Lustral Basin. And it had um, a ground floor and an upper floor. And in fact, the upper floor had a different fresco program. And it would be thought that this entire wing would be used for ceremony or living. And most of these houses, especially bigger ones like this, excuse me, had what we call an auxiliary staircase. That mean an, an interior staircase leading to the upper floor in addition to the one near the entrance, which indicates a great deal of planning. Now, this house I just mentioned, in addition to the sort of ceremonial floors, you had a second half to the house. And the second half of the house seems to have been given over to storage or service activities. Then you, let's go back to the house I mentioned called the West House that was freestanding. It had a ground floor and an upper floor. The ground floor seems to have been for service or storage, maybe even keeping animals. I've seen houses today on Crete where you have animals kept on the ground floor. By animals, I mean like donkeys, not, not their pets. And then you have the living quarters on the upper floor. And that's the form that the West House takes. And in addition to the service area on the ground floor in the West House, you have a room that might either be a sleeping room or a bathroom or both, an entertaining room, and then a workroom where you found all the loom weights, and then a pantry where they found hundreds of cups. Um, and so the, the, these represent the sort of bigger houses. And then you have, like I mentioned, the smaller houses, which might just be um, a ground floor and an upper floor and not really big, more narrow. Interesting. You mentioned uh, horns for consecration were uh, dis discovered earlier in the conversation, Louise. What's what's known um, about how these people would have uh, worshipped in, in any way? That's a really good question. Um, don't know exactly. Um, we know that the Minoans, most of their religious sites were in sacred caves where they left offerings and on mountaintops. And one of these mountaintop sanctuaries at Mount Yuktas on Crete had a large horns of consecration. And some people have connected that with the site of Knossos where you also have large ones. Um, a number of frescoes show quite a few horns of consecration decorating buildings, but we haven't really found more than a few. Um, in my PhD, I argued that used as a building decoration, they tended to mark important entryways. And I based that on wherever we have one, where we actually know the fine spot seems to be near an entryway. So maybe marking a transitional zone. We also have them depicted on altars on a lot of seals and ceilings. And on the seals and ceilings where they're decorating, they're sitting on the top of an altar. And then often associated with them will be trees and sometimes standing stones that were venerated as aniconic deities and we call them betels. 
And the one that we have that's a stone one from Akrotiri, it's just one, it likely fell off a building. Um, the one that is part of a altar and has horn drip, blood dripping down it and is associated with a tree probably represents some type of place of worship. Worship of what? We don't really know. Um, a lot of people have suggested that the horns are symbolic of Zeus because later on he turned himself into a bull. Later in the Mycenaean era, Zeus is actually mentioned in the Linear B tablets. And there are several important sites on Crete associated with him. Now, I wrote an article about 20 years ago where I looked at the issue of uh, bovine power and horned altars. You also find horned altars in the Canaanite world. You find them in Cyprus and you find them in the Philistine world. You find them in the Mycenaean world as, as well, but you actually have fewer of them on the Greek mainland than you do in Cyprus. And whether this is what we call an entangled symbol that spread around, or it was um, a motif that traveled via pottery decoration because you get them on pottery, um, we don't really know. But the bull is pretty much seen as a symbol of power throughout the Mediterranean and Near East um, going back to the Neolithic period at Chateau Huyuk. And you see it in Egypt too, where one of the pre-dynastic kings, King Narmer, wore a bull's tail on his apron. And sometimes the bull stand knocking down a city with its horn stands in for a metaphor of the king. And it just could be, it's a symbol of sort of male power and virility. Um, I understood from um, somebody who worked with animals once that they can shoot their sperm quite a distance. Um, and again, as a symbol of power, you would pick a symbol of power to represent your strongest deity. You wouldn't pick a bunny rabbit. Um, so I just somehow see it as some kind of symbol of male power. Some people argue that it also represents the horizon marker borrowed from Egyptian culture because the Egyptian horizon symbol also represents bullhorns. But again, without an instruction booklet, all we can do is look at the types of places we find it at and see how it's used. But the idea of the blood dripping down the horns is rather compelling because you also had, um, this is mentioned, I believe, in the Old Testament um, with blood sacrifice being smeared on the horns in ancient Israelite horned altars. So there could be something connected with blood sacrifice as well. That article from 20 years ago, Louise, is that up on your academia page as well? Yeah, everything is up there about, except maybe my three or four most recent articles, because they're under embargo still. Okay, so if there's a direct link for that article as well, I'll drop it in the show notes for it, for anybody that wants to go and read up on it. So, uh, closing questions. Uh, have any tombs survived? From Akrotiri, no. Um one thing that's worth mentioning, though, the architect who studied 
the architecture there, um, she was actually able to determine that the houses were modified to give them a more Minoan style. But no, no tombs, no thing, nothing like Pompeii where, you know, people were found trapped on the beach. Um, people or volcanologists and others have speculated that before the volcano blew, there were enough serious earthquakes that everyone fled before the big cataclysm. What, uh, you might've mentioned it earlier, but uh, as a closing question, what year do scholars believe the volcano erupted? And is and, and what's, what's believed to have happened to the civilization as a result of that event? That's a really good question. There isn't agreement on it. The pottery specialists believe that it um, erupted around 1550. And this is based on a very obscure argument that there is a type of Cypriot decorated bowl called a milk bowl. It's called a milk bowl because it's like a half bowl painted in white or with a white slip on it and a wishbone handle. And it has um, very nice chocolate brown geometric designs. And the bowl doesn't appear, it appears at Akrotiri and it doesn't appear as an important Egypt before around 1550. The scientists want to put the eruption in the year 16, originally in 1628, arguing that they found ash from the eruption in an ice core from, um, from Greenland. Then later they decided that that was from a different volcanic eruption and an olive tree was discovered, um, an ancient olive tree was discovered buried in some of the soil on the island. And the olive tree gives um, an adjusted radiocarbon date of 1614. And this is also based on tree ring analysis. Now you're gonna hear more than you really wanted to. There's a long lived tree in California called the bristlecone pine that lives for several thousand years. And scholars are able to date a lot of old stuff based on counting the tree rings and looking for years where maybe the tree rings are rather close together and pathetic, indicating some kind of uh, major climactic or environmental event. Um, they aren't quite, uh, they're too far away or not quite old enough to tell us about Akrotiri. However, they've been correlated to the tree rings on a type of sycamore. The type of sycamore is escaping me at the moment, but it's like uh, in my lecture notes. And this sycamore occurs in Europe. And they were able to correlate the sycamore tree rings to the tree ring on the olive tree, giving them a date of 1614. Now the pottery people don't accept this date. Scientists don't accept the pottery people date. Um, I tend to go with science, but it's important because it gives us a fixed point. Now, whether you believe in this exact date or not, in terms of pottery style, 
the pottery style that is prevalent in Crete, and you also see this pottery on Thera, is the pottery style known as Late Minoan 1A. And after the eruption, and after some cataclysm on Crete, they changed the pottery style to what becomes known as Late Minoan 1B, which is typified by a lot of um, marine style decorations. Um, I actually vis was lucky enough to visit a site on Crete where there was an entire layer of ash from Thera preserved in the stratigraphy. And then on top of it was a thin layer of dirt. And then on top of that was a column base for building a house. Um, so the Theran eruption did not destroy Minoan civilization. It may have caused some damage. A lot of people like to argue that there was a tsunami. It would have been impossible for a tsunami to wipe out the entire island. And the thing is, Minoan civilization is destroyed a good 50 to 100 years after the Theron eruption, plus one new pottery style later. So a lot of times, if you're a person, there are many, many older books, as well as documentaries like on um, uh, the History Channel, which has very little to do with history anymore. And they always start with the question, did the Theron eruption destroy Minoan civilization? By the end, they come around and tell you that it didn't, but we've known this for several decades. Is it believed, is there consensus within the scholarly community that the eruption ended the uh, Theron civilization at, at that given time? Yes, because the site is abandoned and okay. then the eruption happens. We don't know where they went. Um, they could have gone any number of places. Some people speculate they may have gone to the mainland and become craftsmen working for the Mycenaeans. A lot of people speculate they went to Crete because they had a much more um, natural connection with Crete. Some of them might have traveled around the Mediterranean um, selling their artistry. Now, there's one important other thing here to mention. In what is the late Bronze Age in Greece, but still the Middle Bronze Age in the Near East, you start to see Aegean frescoes appearing at a number of important sites. One of them is the Hyksos capital at Tel Daba in Egypt, but another one is the Canaanite palace at Tel Kabri in Israel. And in the palace at Tel Kabri, they found remains of Aegean style frescoes and um, not just a normal Aegean style fresco. The vast majority of Aegean frescoes, they're like not life-size, but like two thirds or half life-size. But there's a famous set of frescoes in the West House at Akrotiri that are miniature frescoes and give a narrative. And the frescoes found at Tel Cabri are also miniature frescoes. And many of them are rendered in a style that is close enough to Akrotiri to be made by the same artist. Okay, and so uh, a closing question. I had this. I had this thought earlier, but wasn't going to ask it as a um, question. Sort of just you know, um, with the cadence of our conversation. But I want to. I want to get it in. And uh, 
might not be the, you know, might not make the most sense as a closing question, but we're going to go with it anyways. Um, is there any, is there any belief among scholars that uh, the, the vol- volcano um, that if you're, if you're sitting in Fira looking out, you can, you can see it, but there's water between the, b- between Santorini and, and the volcano. Do, is there any, do, do scholars believe that in the bronze age, the volcano was part of the actual island, or is it believed that uh, there was water separating those two masses of land? Um, It was beneath the water. I think I mentioned this earlier on. There was original belief that the entire island was solid and round. Um, More recently, volcanologists have come around to the idea that the water is where the, the caldera is beneath the water, and there was always water there between um, Ia on the north and Akrotiri on the south. Okay. Thanks for coming on the show again, Louise. Always great chatting sure. with you. You're very welcome. See you later. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Hitchcock wrote, Aegean Art and Architecture and Theory for Classics, I'll drop links to both the books, and I'll also drop links to the couple articles that Dr. Hitchcock referenced in the episode in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Louise and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.